Up next on episode 46 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff record the podcast in front of a live audience at Mix09 from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. You guys, like, enter mid-sentence. <laughs> okay. Hey, guys, it's the Stack Overflow podcast, episode number 46. I'm 46. Paul Polsky. 46. And this is Jeff Atwood. Yes. And you guys are all just sitting here because there's some nice comfy chairs, right? None of you have ever. Does anybody here listen to the podcast? Maybe you guys heard of Stack Overflow? Cool. Audience. Cool. Audience. Cool. We have an audience for the people listening from home, all 16 of you. We have an audience here of 10,000 people at least. <laughs> it goes about as far as I can see. Right. Joel can't see very far. Um, but uh, we gotta we got to keep it going, though, because Ooh, this is, sorry. Uh, sorry, sorry, this sorry. is a podcast, and the people yeah. will be bored. I, sorry. Uh, so we'll keep it going. Do we have any um, coding horror? Um, no, you're, you're coding horror. No. Do we have any Stack Overflow news? No. Well, there's no news because uh, I had that human baby event. How did that, how does that, how did that work out? Uh, so far, so good. We have a human being. Yeah. yeah. Don't turn your head ever. Ooh, sorry. Because what happens is you cut out of the mic, which is uh, based on your head being in a particular position. Well, I like to think of having a baby as like launching a rocket into the future. You know? It's like you have this baby, and it's like, go. You know? And you get to take care of all that stuff. All these problems we're creating, you get to fix them. So good you mean luck the baby. with that. The baby's in charge. Baby's in charge. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. They're so, going does, to... Uh, does baby have a Stack Overflow account yet? No, Baby has a Twitter account, but not a Stack Overflow account yet. And that is what twitter.com slash rockhard. Uh, twitter.com slash rockhard awesome. So, awesome. Yeah. So cool. let, me, let me open. Actually, I don't have any Stack Overflow news because it's been super busy because we were setting up for Mix and the Baby event. Um, yeah. But I do have some Stack Overflow questions that, that I liked. Um, let's, and do actually, let's do some Stack Overflow well, questions. Let's, let's do the classic. Okay, this is the classic Stack Overflow question uh, that occasionally you see on the site. But what I love about this is it, is it shows how, how fantastic the community really is on Stack Overflow. So the question number is 656549. And it says, it's very simple, what does Stack Overflow on line 25 mean? <laughs> so this is not a programmer. This is a user who has gotten a Stack Overflow in probably their browser. And they probably typed that into they the probably G typed search in, engine. What the heck is a Stack Overflow? Why am I getting this? And why, why does the computer hate me so much? Stack Overflow on yeah. line 25. That actually and probably means something, doesn't it? Yeah. So we get a lot. Actually, we do get a lot of traffic on that. Well, it does take you to Stack Overflow if you if you type that into. Google. That's right. That's right. So this is normally the kind of question I would just delete because it's like it's not a real question. Oops, they, they don't know what's going on. It's, there's nothing good can come of this question, right? You would think. <laughs> and yet, the first answer from Joel Cohorn, Cohorn, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, is actually a really good answer. It's a really good description of what a call stack is and what how you can actually have a Stack Overflow. I mean, now, the this person, is not somebody that has any way of understanding this uh, right, this, question Right, this answer, there's no way this person can actually understand this answer, but it's a really good answer. Yeah. So, like, this pains me because I, I desperately want to delete this question, but I can't because it's a really a, good answer. 
So like, stop I have, putting so these good answers to, on bad questions. First, you, first, the trouble is, first you have to figure out what technology has Stack Overflow on line X, like what programming environment could they possibly be using, right? Because like a C program on Unix would never say that. Do any of you have any, anybody know something that prints a line number when you have a Stack Overflow? Well, you figure this is a browser. I mean, it's got to be the browser. Oh, it's in JavaScript. So it's JavaScript. Oh yeah, okay, I didn't think of that. Yeah. Yeah. So. But anyway, I just want to cover that. That's, that's the classic. There's some really good answers to this question, so it's going to stay. And the number one answer is you didn't pay your internet bill. <laughs> <laughs> it's also a duplicate, which sweetens the pot. So not only is it a bad question, it's a duplicate with great answers. So it's like, Arr. yeah. But wait, you didn't read the answer. Oh, well, I, I don't want to read the boring. whole answer. It's a very technical. It, 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 it is, it's technical. It's a very good answer. And it's just 656-549 uh, if anyone wants to see it. Uh, if you actually wonder what a Stack Overflow is, I would assume most programmers know. So another Stack Overflow related question. This is funny because this is an example of a question where they're trying to read the asker's mind. The question is so bad. The they're like, I don't know what your question is, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to th guess <laughs> that this is what you're actually asking. And I thought it was actually a really good answer. So the actual question is, this is number 656226. I'm wondering why, when in C Sharp, if I use the set accessor to change a static class member, I get a Stack Overflow error. I'm not disputing this is a bug. I just want to know exactly what is going on in the internals of the machine. Right. So unsophisticated programmer, which is fine. So the first answer from Mark Gravel is, well, I'm guessing that you have a private variable representing a public uh, property. And in the public property, you're using the wrong name. So it's calling the property that's calling itself over and over. So you've just made an infinite loop You've made another stack overflow. Accessor. Right. Which is what a Stack Overflow, why doesn't it say, well, what the heck, I mean, we know it's a Stack Overflow, right? but if you're going to print that error message, just write infinite loop. But then what will we name our website? <laughs> infinite loop. Infinite loop. What's at, what's at infiniteloop.com? Well, I think Apple has that street occupied, so I don't know that we can do that. Okay. But uh, another Stack Overflow question with a great answer to a, a pretty silly question. So, uh, again, embarrassing us with your awesomeness of answering these people's questions in a very legitimate way. That's kind of what we want. I mean, if somebody's coming in and they've legitimately landed on this page with a question, then, uh, you know, as long as it's really a programming-related thing, why shouldn't that be the place that they go on the Internet to discover what a Stack Overflow is? No, it's not. And two, I, I think answering questions is kind of satisfying on some level. You know, just, just having a succinct answer that gets to the root of even a simple problem is just really yeah. satisfying. Because to me, programming is a lot of really small things done well. It's not like some giant, you know, space shuttle you're launching in space. It's like, let me have some tiny little algorithm or some little block of code. I'm going to write it in a really cool, neat way that I like. It's not perfect. It's just the way that appeals to me. Uh, and I get a lot of intense satisfaction out of that, actually. And I think these little questions are like that. So they're satisfying to just bang out an answer to a little question that's not like, you know, what's wrong with the world, right? That's a hard problem. <laughs> but what's wrong with this little block of code? It's like, oh, I know exactly what's wrong. Here's what you do. And problem solved. Everybody's happy. Move on. To Jeff, do you think somebody could ever make a website like Yahoo Answers? That, is, that doesn't devolve into teenagers asking each other about birth control? Uh, it, it's possible. I think Metafilter is the closest. In a very naive, kind of stupid way. It Meta takes filter. intense moderation, like intense. Yeah. And Metafilter is the only place I've seen it happen. And they charge you to create an account on they Metafilter? They charge $5. Yeah, so That's that like helps. a whole week's allowance. And also they have really good, like, kick-butt moderators that do an outstanding job. So that's what it takes. It's very, very difficult to sustain. And, and also, you cheat, you, but you have a really high-quality audience to start with. I mean, if you started from scratch and you tried to attract people, right. you have a total catch-22 of, like, it's a ghost town. How do you attract these high-quality people when you have no high-quality information? So why do, the, why do the teenagers, or they're not even teenagers, they seem to be eight, the people asking and answering questions on Yahoo Answers, 
they really do seem to be like eight or nine years old. Or they're just like excellent trolls. But they're like, how the hell did I get pregnant? Look what <laughs> I, I used all the yeah. voodoo magic that the book said I had to use. Right. No, Yahoo Answers is actually kind of surprisingly fun to, to mess around with. It's horrible for actual information, but... There's never it, an answer there. But it's actually really Even entertaining to go to Yahoo Answers for some reason. It's like, like if how, how much is bored, a cup of sugar? Yeah, if you're ever bored, just go to Yahoo Answers, start clicking on people's profiles, go to the leaderboard, and just you'll see just craziness. It's like you're four clicks away from the funniest thing you've ever seen. I'm going to do it right now. At Yahoo any given time. Answers leaderboard. Because, yeah, we found that when we were researching all the Q&A sites to do Stack Overflow, we were like, wow, Yahoo Answers really sucks, but we can't stop looking at it. You know? It's like, how did they do that? God, this person has 621,792 oh, points. Uh, it's, it's, it's insanity. And it's given 98,008 answers. I think there's some scripting going on there. And there's a person whining about, uh, I am male, but female avatars are just more intriguing. Okay, never mind. It's clearly not well, John's One that I put on Twitter that I thought was very funny was like, it was a girl asking, like, what, what is this guy looking for in me? And, and, the, and, the, and the answer was boobs. <laughs> and it got, like, a million upvotes. Uh, and I was like, that's funny. Yeah, it's stupid, but it's funny, you know. And it's kind of true. And it's kind of true. Uh, we so, have an audience question. We have yes. somewhere, we have a, don't ask a question until you get the mic. We have a mic floating we have, around here. This is, by the way, this is Jeff Dalgus, who works hey everyone, on. everyone, this is the programmer of Stack Overflow. Yes, one of the programmers. The other one's back Feel there. Feel free to harangue him later. I give you total permission to harangue him. The silly question, but are there any answers on Yahoo Answers for Stack Overflow problems? Let's try it right now. Uh, that's uh, a good search question. for Stack Why Overflow. did my computer Stack Overflow? We did. I, I did actually an look for C Sharp questions on Yahoo Answers, but it's just it's not their thing. Hey, they got that one. What does a message Stack Overflow at line 19 mean? They have the same question as us. It's like our doppel site. It's like there the doppelganger go. of Stack Overflow. Let me do a question. I got a question. I got a question I want to do. Um, okay. uh, some of these are sort of stupid. Oh, here's this, uh, this is one I want to talk about. The question is, is there a human-readable programming language? I mean, is there a coded language with human-style coding, for example, and then they have some pseudo-COBOL here. Create an object called myVar and initialize it to 10 semicolon. That's already not human. Take myVar and call my method with parameters, dot, dot, dot. Wait, wait. Is this actual COBOL code for real? No, but it could be. If there was, is there object oriented? There probably is object oriented. I mean, I, I literally don't know COBOL. COBOL like, is, was designed to be human readable. So that's the answer is yes. And it was COBOL, and everybody decided that that was a really dumb idea. But I mean, in the, original, I, the original idea of COBOL was that maybe regular people couldn't write the code, but at least the managers could read the code so that they could ensure that their programmer slaves were actually do, doing, doing reasonable things. Um, so you would write add one to var, and that would increment the variable var. And that was, in fact, the only way to do it. Um, well, I think you immediately know you have a problem, because even you can't get people to understand normal writing, much less code, right? So you, you have all the problems of code plus the problems of written language. I mean, that's like two problems in one. Right. You know, so you really, why would you combine those two great tastes that don't taste great together? Uh, programming language isn't really a language. I mean, a programming language has about 23 moving parts if you count the entire grammar of a programming language compared to a, an actual spoken language. You know, it has no ambiguity and it can't have ambiguity. A programming language can't function without ambiguity because we would all slaughter each other. Not that we don't do that even with the ambiguity. Uh, the, the, the first uh, number one answer on here um, it's a community wiki. I don't know who originally wrote it, but somebody actually gave a sample of some COBOL code. Add years to age, multiply price by quantity, giving cost, subtract discount from cost, giving final cost. That's a very typical actual COBOL blob of COBOL code, but it never really looks like that. You know, that's how the samples look in the books. But it's just like, it's just like the friggin' Northwind database, right? You got your orders table, your quantities table, your customers table, and your products table. 
And it's like, you know, we don't, you know, I guess somebody somewhere has that. Well, I like that directly below it, he talks about how you can have these really friendly variable names, so it's really readable, but programmers immediately go with underscores and like abbreviations, and they totally like throw it out the window. If I'm not mistaken, I don't think COBOL had scope. I don't think it had lexical scope. I think everything was global. So the first thing you did is you made a, a naming convention to try to, to, try to make things kind of work. The same with, same with Fortran. In those well, days, like, they hadn't quite figured like that out. Well, there's probably like COBOL 2000 and, you know, newer yeah. versions of COBOL out there that improve this. I'm sure there's, there's, there is object-oriented COBOL somewhere. That's a good one. Did you read the number just for the audio? Oh, yeah. The number is 202750. It's kind of an old one. So let's take another audience question. Any other audience uh, questions? Yeah, I was wondering what the point of Silverlight is. So, uh, oh, boy. What is, what is Silverlight? Somebody want to... Oh, just a general question of what is Silverlight? What is the point of Silverlight? Oh, <laughs> well, I was hoping you knew. No, I'm just No, it's... Uh, so Silverlight, the, the way I... I'm just giving you my take on Silverlight. Uh, may not be the official party line. Um, it's like Flash, but much more friendly to actual programmers. Because Flash has this weird sort of event-driven designery thing going on, and like they kind of tack the code on there, and That's it just true. comes out kind of crazy. Flash started out as an animation tool where you yeah. basically made a, made a sprite, like a little animation, and you said, cause it to follow this path. And all the programming that's in Flash was all, all sort of tacked on later using uh, a not bad programming language, but definitely not as good as C Sharp, which is uh, ActionScript. It's just, it, I think a lot of t technology stuff starts out like this. It, it, it's, it's affected by where it was born. Like Unix was born in a multi-user environment, so it does that really well. Windows was not, right? Windows started, okay, you have a single user operating system, security, eh, maybe. <laughs> um, and I think Flash is like that. It just started out not from a programmer perspective, and that's sort of been carried forward more or less, although it's improved, obviously, just like Windows has improved with security and things like that. Um, but yeah, uh, and I, I hear there's some new version of Silverlight that might be released sometime. Wait, are you leaking things in the keynote? No, what? No. Keynote? What? what? No. <laughs> we don't know anything. Yeah. We, we don't know. work for Microsoft either. We know nothing. But no, I'm actually anxious to see what's coming. I've heard really good things. Um, I don't actually know what they are, but I'm excited. So. I, don't, I wonder how much I guess I'm going to get. They have, I don't, I don't know if you guys know this, but if you're a speaker of any sort at any kind of Microsoft event, they have a Velociraptor stationed off stage, ready to be released <laughs> on the slightest provocation. They push a little button, the gates open, the Velociraptor comes and eats you. Right. So, uh, right. Um, well, Joel was going to say yeah. Microsoft sucks at one point, and they were like, no, 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 don't say that. <laughs> you're getting off message, Joel. Uh, so, yeah, you're getting off message. <laughs> So I wonder, I mean, I like Silverlight, but I sort of feel like um, to a web developer, um, you look out there and Flash has 99.9% .9 of all desktops, and people that don't have Flash basically have broken web browsers and they know it. Uh, whereas Silverlight is on, you know, I don't know, they had the Olympics, and a lot of people downloaded it. And, you know, they'll have a few other sites. So, the, so maybe, I don't know, 24% of web browsers might have Silverlight. And it's going to go up, but it's never going to be 99%. And so it's always going to be a problematic decision for, uh, for a developer uh, to make. I mean, most developers writing things for the general, the world, are probably going to think long and hard about whether or not they can make people install Silverlight. To that extent, it's a lot like, should I make an ActiveX control? That's that sort of decision. You know, somebody writing for the general public is going to think real hard about, about whether they really need the Silverlight things. On the other hand, somebody doing an intranet, uh, intranet site where they control something of the, of the desktop and the deployment uh, might be willing to do that. And it certainly... Um, get a lot of the benefits of being able to use all the cool Visual Studio tools and frameworks and who knows what. 
Right. I, I'm for it. I'm for anything that makes a better environment for developers. But you have to be realistic about, you know, like Joel said, what you're doing, what the audience is. You know, use the right tool for the job, ultimately. Um, and the more tools we have, I mean, I'm not complaining. And Silverlight is very, very cool. So, for it. So let's do yet another, yeah. yet another. audience question. Okay. So yeah. who's got the mic there? What's the most number of questions asked by a single user on Stack Overflow? Oh, gosh. How do you find that out? Uh, I'd have to run a query, which I can't do. But right, I, I would go, say, go, go, go. well, I, I will say that in general, <laughs> let me just give you the general uh, perspective of the, the, the stats. It, from what I've seen, it, you tend to have small number of questions and large number of answers in the, in the typical case. Yeah, most people, it's like 10 or 20. Yeah, most, it's really narrow. And I know that when I ask questions on Stack Overflow, I guess because it's like our thing, like I'm really like, I don't, I don't know if I want to ask it. Like I want to make sure I research it. Like <laughs> I don't want to make my own site look bad by asking some doofus question. Half the question. time when I try to ask something, it's already there. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're, you know, the more responsible users are going to do a little bit of dupe searching. Yeah. I think you see the more responsible users who are like really good at Q&A realize that asking a question is kind of a big deal. And one of the things when we designed the site, we realized a lot of these sites got it really wrong, where the first thing you would see when you come to the site would be like, ask a question. We're like, no, 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 no. That you do not want to like immediately have people asking questions. You want we them to look at the site, think about, ooh, do I know the answers to these questions? Yeah. And then sort of learn about the site and like what it's about and what kind of questions make sense, and then ask a question. Yeah. Because that's a piece of design feedback we got a lot. It was like, oh, you guys are making a huge mistake. You've got to have a big box that says, ask a question. And I knew they were wrong. I mean, I just intuitively knew they were wrong. But you kept hearing this over and over. They're just copying Google. That's just copying the design of Google. But, yeah. we, but we have that user interface, and that's Google. I'm sorry. That's where the well, Velociraptor comes out. Yeah. Your search engine, <laughs> your favorite search. search engine. So your web, web, your favorite search. web search. Be, I mean, the whole, the, you know, one of the things we'll, we'll, um, uh, we talk about all the time is how our very original design is. The way Stack Overflow works is you go to your favorite search engine, you type a question, you hit enter, and then you find the result. And that is the most important use case of Stack Overflow is things that are already in there. And after you've seen three or four of those and you notice they're all coming up on this site called Stack Overflow, you might say, hey, I wonder what else is going on here. And you may not ask questions on there uh, for a while. You may participate. You may just sort of look around. You may kind of hang out and... And what we wanted the homepage to be then was just some sort of interesting questions where you can learn some interesting kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, we really, Joel and I wanted to take sort of a different tack with the site, you know, and it's kind of go in different directions and kind of experiment a little bit. Um, so some of these decisions, you know, were intentionally experimental. Like we were like, well, let's see what happens if we try this rather than just doing the same thing that everybody else does. Um, so I think that one in particular paid off. What the heck is Vala, V-A-L-A? Will Vala survive? Uh, okay, never mind. Boring question. Uh, you got another, got another uh, favorite question you want to do, or I can come uh, up with it? I do. So here's a classic one, and this is a classic discussion question. And, but uh. Discussion is valid on Stack Overflow. If you, if you can keep it focused to some narrow topic, it is acceptable to have a discussion. Yeah, then and you can have somebody summarizing the main points, and that's the winning answer is like, well, yeah. some I mean, you get some this. really good information some out of it. And here's an example. That. So this is 36707. So this is an old question, and it's should a function have only one return statement? Right, another classic sort of yeah. potato, one, potato. One, basically one exit point from the function. Yeah, that's sort of an old school. It's very old school. And it's then you, like, what do you get? a lot of go-tos. Is that the system? Well, it's weird that you'll get a lot of advice in programming that eventually, over time, you start to really disagree with them. Like, how could this ever really be valid advice? Right. Like, all your variables should be at the top. Well, doesn't that destroy scope where the variables should be very near where you're actually using them so you see it? Whereas up here, that's you're just not a that's just a bug that's from programming languages that required that in the old days. Like but C there's used people to who that. carry that forward. They're like, oh, well, that's the way we've always done it. We always put the variables at the top. 
you know, and then you right. have to go down here and you do yeah, stuff. Yeah, but this is like the joke about that uh, your, your mother has a recipe for the meatloaf, and you have to cut off the ends of the meatloaf oh. before you put it in the oven. <laughs> You're like, Mom, why are you cutting off the ends of the meatloaf? Yes. And she doesn't know, but her mother did it that way, and you call your grandmother, and she's like, well, I have a very small oven. So you right. <laughs> had to cut off the end of the, well, the meatloaf, and you're still doing that even though it doesn't matter. So that's what that is with the variables at the top of the function. It's not even required in C anymore. There's a new version of C that doesn't require that. But I think that's a good way. It's good to question this stuff periodically. Right? Right. Not, not right. all the time where you're kind of a jerk about it, like, why do we have to do it this way? But like, just in a, in a nice way, say, well, what if we didn't do this? What would be the bad thing that happened? Or maybe something good would happen, you know? Um, and have a reasonable discussion about it. And so let me, let me give my opinion before I even look sure. at what no, 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 said. Um, my opinion is, like, it, it is indeed your goal, right, to have as small a function as possible. You're always trying to make a function that does one yeah, thing, small, right? Small. A function should do one thing. Yeah. Uh, it shouldn't be too embellished. But inevitably what happens is in that kind of function, there's all kinds of stuff that can go wrong. And so the top of the function is often a lot of checking to make, you know, sanity check. Like, do I have the right variables? Do I have the right... And so a lot of your functions, like a, a well-designed function, most of the long functions that I write, wind up having guard clauses at the top. So basically, you have two ways of solving this problem. You can either have if x is okay, and then if y is okay, then if z is okay, then, and then you got 14 levels of nested parentheses, and at the, in the very middle you do your code, and then you go pop, 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 and it just looks like garbage. Or um, you can, uh, wait, I'm just going to lower, I'm getting a little feedback, so I'm going to lower my vibe. Do you still hear me? Okay. Uh, or what you can do is basically just write a function where you test if x is wrong, and if so, return. And if y is wrong, return. And if, and if z is wrong, return. And you just basically test all this stuff and kick it out. And they're, they're called guard, guard clauses, right? So yeah, there's a bunch of stuff clauses. that guards the rest of your code. And then your code is down there sort of at the bottom of the function after all these guard clauses. And that seems like a whole, whole buttload of return statements well, in the middle of the code. That's right. That's right. And so what you're and trying to avoid... things very cleanly. Yeah, we are getting feedback. So I'm going to yeah. lean back. And so yeah, okay. what you can end up with sometimes is, is classic arrow code where you have so many guard clauses with if this, if this, if this. And then you end up over here. Anytime you're over here, it's like alarm bells should be going off. It's like, why am I over here? How did I get over here? <laughs> right? This is bad, probably. Um, and guard clauses would be one reason that could happen. And then I think with guard clauses, you should also ask, well, what if I don't have a guard clause? Do I, maybe I actually want an exception here. You know? Like if you have too many guard clauses, like say you just silently yeah. fail or return, or, yeah. then you get into the whole, we don't even want to get Joel started on return arguments versus exceptions. Yeah. Right? No, exceptions. No, we're not going to go there. Um, so I think there's another discussion that comes up there. Um, and to me, what's interesting is the top three responses all say, okay, I hear what you're saying in theory, but in practice, when I actually sit down and write code, this is what ends up being easier to work with and easier to maintain. So I, I think it's a classic example of, you know, in, in theory there's no difference, and in practice there is. So I okay. think the in practice part should rule uh, all the time. Does anybody from the audience want to shout out an answer or opinion on the... Learn C. <laughs> Nobody's done that yet. <laughs> on the question of multiple return points. What was the number one answer to the multiple return points? Uh, it was Matt Hamilton. It was basically just, you know, keep your function small. And right. returning early is one really nice way to keep your function small. And also over on this side of the page. Yeah, he's sort of describing my case, which is at the top of, he's saying at the top of a function, like clear away all the weird cases and get rid of them first. And, and just return if, if any of those things happen before you start allocating stuff and, so that you don't have to figure out what the free at the bottom of the function. Sorry, right. that was C. Um, okay. Any more questions from the audience? From a scalability point, have you ever considered moving Stack Overflow to the cloud? Stack Overflow in the cloud. Uh, to the cloud. So You mean like Amazon Web I Services or Azure? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, um, we have. I, I have kind of a bias. I, I feel like Stack Overflow is, in some sense, like my baby, and like I don't really want it running in a thing that I don't control. Like I feel like I desperately, and this is probably saying more about me than the design of the way you guys should do it. But like I really want to control every little aspect of it. So if something goes wrong, I can say, you know what, I can take responsibility for that. You know, and I can fix it, or I can't fix it, or I know what went wrong and how to deal with it. Um, and sometimes it can be a little painful. Like the whole raid experiment I went through was, you know, very time intensive. But I wanted to do it. Like I felt like I learned stuff from doing that. Yeah, that's uh, why you have a cool, fun job because you get to like play with raid. <laughs> that's right. But I don't think it's the right choice for everybody. I think you have to figure out like where you want to go. Like, is it experimental? Like, would you want to set up three servers for something you don't even know? Is it going to work? Is it not going to work? Are people going to like it? Who's going to care? That would be a lot of effort for something like that. Yeah. But for a site like ours, we say, okay, this thing is working. We really like it. Other people like it. Um, we want it to grow. Then I think it was the right choice in, in that scenario. Um, There's sort of a difference between the cloud services that provide, I, I don't know how to categorize these, but the ones that, like Amazon Web Services where they give you a blank server and you do whatever you want with it, and maybe they give you like a tool to clone the server. And uh, we're actually um, um, planning to set something like that up um, for a backup of Fogbugs On Demand. So um, the idea of Fogbugs On Demand is basically we don't want to have twice the capacity that we need um, so that we can fail over if, if half of the things. But right, right now our situation is that we have a New York uh, data center and a Los Angeles data center, and both of them have double capacity so that we can fail over. And we don't want to keep that going forever. Um, so our idea is that we'll keep, uh, we'll keep just New York and we'll fail over uh, into the Amazon cloud where we can rapidly bring up multiple servers that we don't have to pay for until we need them. And, that, that, and that's really only for disaster recovery if everything goes down. In general, we don't, um, we don't know what kind of servers they're going to give us, what kind of performance they're going to have. And there's always going to be the day that somebody comes in and says, hey, you know, put another two gigs on. I mean, we had that exact situation with, with Stack Overflow where we were using, it wasn't even the cloud, but we were using a standard you know, hosted uh, data center kind of thing where you just rent a server from them. And then we suddenly discovered that if you want to put more memory in, their prices are like ridiculously unreasonable for that particular thing. And that was with the host that we really, we liked the host. And that was a good host. Yeah, it was a good imagine, host. Imagine they did a, a great host. job. Yeah, yeah, so imagine what it's like with a bad host. So it's really obviously just a question of, of trade-offs and where you want to go. But flexibility is awesome. And I saw Amazon EC2 is doing a new thing called reserved capacity, where you can actually buy, like prepay for a certain amount of time and they'll, they'll guarantee you, like if something failure happens, they will have... It'll just go on. It, it, they will have the, the, the instances for you. They'll be ready to go. So again, illustrating where flexibility can really pay off. Um, so I think you just have to balance where you are. And if you're right. a control freak like me, then you have problems. Right. And we're, we're control freaks too, so I'm very Yeah, Joel is kind of too. I mean, so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he feeds now, my... Now yeah. I want to say that the, the, the other kind, the, more, the, the uh, Google, uh, Google Web Services, Azure, and things like even Amazon's uh, storage... Uh, tend to give you an API that lets you do something in a scalable way, uh, or they give you a programming environment of some sort that if you go and run it on their servers, it'll just magically be scalable because you're taking advantage of all their services. And the thing that drives me crazy about that, and it doesn't drive a lot of people crazy, I don't know why I'm the only person, but it scares me that you then become dependent on a single vendor. Um, you basically have this big, gigantic outside dependency, and if that vendor decides to raise their prices or to screw you over, if that vendor's just not making money and they decide to close down that service, uh, you have basically now written a lot of code that it thinks that it's going to run in this exact environment, and you're basically back to ground zero of like rewriting all that code. So I'm always like really, really, really hesitant to use things that either you know if it's an infrastructure type thing, I don't want to use it if it's either uh, um, only available from a single vendor 
And if it is only available from a single vendor, I mean, it's true. I mean, we built things on Windows, for, for God's sakes, and that's only right. available from a single vendor, but that's not going anywhere. I mean, that's not even a reasonable belief that Microsoft would suddenly lose interest in the Windows franchise uh, and stop doing that. So, you know, as long as you're going to be stuck with something, be stuck with uh, something that, you know, has a 99.9% .9 chance of surviving another few years. Because um, it's really, really scary to build a business and then have all kinds of external dependencies you hadn't thought about. But, but we, that happens to us, too. I mean, on Stack Overflow, we have one big hidden external dependency, which is Google. You know, like 85% of our traffic is Google. Yeah. So if Google decides, hey, you know what, we don't like you. I mean, granted, it's very implausible. They're not going to do that. What if it happened? I mean, yeah. that would, I mean, because we, right now, right. we're making money through very traditional ad sales of CPMs and stuff. We have some other ideas yeah. that are coming, but. And like, eight, what, 85% of our traffic? So that uh, would, basically, imagine your income dropping 85%. So that's. Yeah. I mean, that's a dependency, and you just have to live with it. So I used to be scared that, I, that, that, like, I, that one day our sales at Fog Creek for Fogbugs would just go down by 75%, and I'd be like, what the hell happened? And I'd suddenly discover that we weren't coming up in search results at Google, like maybe Joel and Software Articles, Fogbugs, whatever. All that stuff that ranks very highly in Google by now. And, you know, I just decided that somebody at Google just kind of had it in for me. And Google doesn't really have, like, an organized way. They probably do. But, but there's no, like, open, organized, jury of your peers kind of way if they suddenly decide to put you on their death watch, uh, right. their, the Google kill list, the Google death penalty. I actually got to a Google kill page recently. I don't even know where I was. I probably shouldn't even talk about this, but <laughs> some weird place on the internet. And it actually explained, like, here's why this is blocked. Here's what it can do to fix it. And then, like, a, tons of detail, like when it happened, how it happened. So it wasn't like a cabal, like, ooh, mysteriously, this is not available. It's like, look, we had to remove this. Here's you know all the detail you could possibly want, and I think that's maybe nice to see. It's definitely one, one, that's one of the areas where I think Google be actually believes in their "don't be evil" kind of ma mantra, and they actually think that they have to be like fair with with search with the search results. That's that's like I think if you try if you were a Google employee and you tried right. to have some kind of shenanigans with the with the search results, uh, I think you'd probably get shouted down by everybody. Well, else. actually, there's maybe so. a more s simpler reason that that would happen because I know a lot. Sometimes the, the reason we do things in Stack Overflow is because we're getting so much email on something that was like, make it stop. Right. You know? <laughs> Just make like the we're going to implement away. whatever it takes so that people stop emailing us about this, right? Because it's just confusing. We did it wrong. We did something wrong, and it's really our fault. And I feel like, to the extent that we spend a lot of time dealing with it, we need to fix it at the code level if we can. Now, there's a lot of social things you can't fix that way, but there's a lot of opportunity to fix things in code that way, too. So if you're getting a lot of chatter, a lot of noise about something, you know, think about ways you could really fix it in code so that this doesn't come up again, or some tool could deal with it, right? You want to fix these problems in the long term. So I think we had a question over here. Yeah. What issues did you guys have with using ASP.NET MVC as your stack platform? Good question. Uh, well, we really like ASP.NET MVC. Uh, we feel like it, it matched our mental model of the way we wanted to write a website really closely uh, out of the box. Probably the only frustration we had was like your typical beta stuff where we came on at like beta 3, I think. I think I, did, did, you, did, it, did you ever ask me my opinion about ASP.NET MVC? Because <laughs> if you had asked know. me, I would have been like, are you crazy? That shit's in beta. <laughs> you, can, you, can we use something that's at least shipping? Yeah, it's still not shipping. And I would have been wrong. And we're still running the beta version, actually, because we haven't had time to update. <laughs> Uh, we will. 
we're going to get to the release kit. Well, probably by the time they come out with the release, we'll switch to it. How did you even, what even made you know that ASP.NET was the right thing to use? It well, so much seemed okay. like just like a Ruby on Rails wannabe kind well, of I wouldn't say it's bandwagon Ruby, hopping. No, I wouldn't really explain it that way. I would explain it as, okay, so when they sat down and no, designed. that's what I thought. When they sat down and designed like web forms, like low those many moons ago. And this yeah. is like, what, year 1999? This is like the dark ages of the right, web. Right, right. How do I mean, we make there it was look no like YouTube? Visual Basic? A world without YouTube, is that even possible? And uh, so they made these decisions very, very early on. And they decided, okay, we're going to abstract away the web stuff and make it more like traditional sort of Windows forms programming. And on the face of it, this sounds neat because you can have controls that emit HTML and it's all very abstract and very, you know, architecture astronauty on some level. You just have these controls that do stuff. You set properties on the control and it just magically works. You don't have to know you're on a website running a browser. It's <laughs> until, just code. Until, it's really, until yeah, you attach, up. Right, until you attach something to the on-click of a label and the user has their JavaScript turned off, so it just stops working. And all of a sudden, you're blown back into like the, 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 the plumbing of the whole thing. Yeah, it, it was a very... The abstraction it was a fails. Really, yeah, it was a very leaky abstraction. It's yeah. like the kind of like, give me a raincoat you know, abstraction. It was uh, uh, that yeah. leaky. So with uh, MVC, we didn't have that feeling. We felt like, okay, this matches sort of modern thinking on how, how you should write web apps. You know, what is known to work, what works right. in practice, what is simple, maintainable, easy, and clean. Um, and I, we had intuitively arrived at this stuff, too. Working with web forms, you're like, well, wow, I wish I could just really control the output at a very fine level. And I wish my URLs didn't have that crappy .aspx in them. You know? <laughs> and I wish they could have just, they just look like what they are. What you, you got to do, you have to go into IIS, and you reassign some, yeah. some cool, like .rb or something <laughs> to be .aspx. <laughs> And then you look cool because you, you just rename all your web pages .rb. Yeah, it's funny if you do that accurately enough. There's and, and remove <laughs> the server header. There's like yeah. literally no way anyone could tell what stack you're using. They would, it would be a total mystery. I have for Joel on software. There's actually VB script doing a couple of things. That's great. But whatever, it's Joel on software. Who cares? <laughs> That's true. But I but what I did is I just told it to insert it to use HTML as the header as the. The, the assignment for HTML is to go through VBScript, so I can do that sort of invisibly without anybody noticing. Right. So the only pain points we to have my with shame. the only pain points we have with MVC are a your typical beta stuff where they decided okay this function is now this function, and then two like you could see you mean they renamed functions well, during they, the beta? Well, they would just change the way functions work. It's just a normal process of evolution yeah. through beta. I don't I don't really hold that against anyone. No. Um, but one thing that was a little frustrating was you could see that they they made design decisions that weren't necessarily correct. And then those decisions kind of get carried forward because you're far enough along that you can't just go in and say, you know what, that was a bad idea. Do over. Right. You know? And part of it, too, is like they were copying things. Well, copy is a strong word. Emulating good things about Ruby on Rails that kind of came out of the dynamic language stuff. That Which they didn't exactly have. kind of make it work in C Sharp, but not exactly. It's so better it's, in Iron Python, actually. Yeah. What's actually surprising is, is how much better ASP.NET code looks in Python than in C Sharp. <laughs> right? Because you don't. You Python's don't, cool. Yeah. Well, you don't, have to, you don't have to do any of those. Like, you don't declare stuff. You don't have to have all those properties and stuff. You never have to say right. object dot and then some property. You can just say object. So there, there's points around the edges where you can see they were trying to make it fit, and it didn't quite fit. But it was, it was, it was much better than the alternatives, right. which is the important thing from our perspective. Oh, so. yeah. So yeah, I'm a big fan. Continue to recommend it. It's working great for us. I think so. you know what you know. Webforms is good. Webforms is good for when you need to build as quickly as possible a CRUD app that is allowed to look like CRUD. 
In other words, it's an internal <laughs> application that you're going to use so that right. your salespeople can, can process refunds. And all they have to know how to do is like enter a row in the refund table, and you're just going to give them an interface to that. And you can slap that together, sitting on one hand, just using the mouse, click, 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 drag the grid view out, <laughs> drag the whatever out, hook it up to the blah, blah, right. blah. It looks like ass, but it works. Right, right. Yeah, Joel has this uh, way of describing it as code you write <laughs> without touching the keyboard. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, depending on what you're doing, that can work. Uh, if so. you don't have to type, that's always good. You've got a whole bunch of labels named label one, label two, label three. Your buttons are like command button one, command button two. Right. So any other... Don't give it to John Galloway. He's already asked a question. Hi, uh, management question. What do you do with the new guy? Like if you have a company that has a fairly sizable code base, like 100,000 lines or so, what is... What does the new guy do on his first day or the first six weeks? Or Fix whatever? bugs. You just give him a bugs all over the code base. Well, give him. I think. Well, I think I've heard this advice before. And it's good advice. Yeah. Give him the simplest possible bug. Like there's an error in the HTML. Doesn't have to be simple. No, no, no. Seriously, because you're, the first day you're just learning like how to set up your workstation. That's true. That's right? true. I mean, you're doing nothing. You could be nice and give him easy bugs. Yeah, to give start him something with. nice. Say, hey, look, just fix. Like we have this spelling error in the HTML. Go fix that. Right? And then I think on day two, it's like, okay, give them a slightly more difficult bug. You know, something that requires compiling code or you know, editing yeah. the code base in some meaningful way. Because think, think, about, think about what happens when you're, when, you're, when you're told to fix a bug. You've got some code base. You're going to go in there in the debugger, and you're just going to set breakpoints. You're going to try to figure out how the code works. And you're going to learn. Probably, it's probably the fastest way possible to learn how the code works and to see where it goes and why, why things happen. Try to figure out why that code is happening. Form, form your hypothesis. It's the best way to get dragged through the code rapidly and kind of learn how how things work. And of course, you need to have a mentor who can help you. But yeah. You want to have like a safety blanket. You want someone there helping you. You don't want to... I mean, it's not, you can also do that for interviews. That would be the no help version of like, okay, here's code that has that a bug. Work? Yeah, fix it. Go fix it. Yeah. You know, so that becomes an interview. So this is more supported <laughs> than that. But I think that's one way to start. Uh, and I think a, a reasonable one. Um, I don't know. Did you have any other... No? I mean, what do you do with new guys? You dunk them? <laughs> So you have like smaller projects that like, like a, sandboxes. Like a, like a sandbox project where you could. Uh... Or I didn't know if you attached them to the hip to a more experienced person that had been there for a while. Um... We, we do do that. I mean, Mentoring we'll have, is uh, good. Yeah. Mentoring is always good. We basically, like at Fog Creek, you're going to get code reviewed on every check-in until you start writing good code. And then it's going to scale back a lot. Um, and that usually, if somebody starts as an intern, that'll usually happen in the summer of their internship. By the time they get back, uh, a lot less. If somebody starts new, they'll be, they'll be getting code reviewed like crazy for the first couple of months. Just because nobody wants to have to deal with their shit, right? Everybody wants to make sure that what they're checking in <laughs> is safe, is, is, is reasonable. I mean, there's a real strong motivation to code review um, the new guy. Um, but, the, but bug fixing definitely works. We don't really do any kind of hazing. I really wish we, we could. <laughs> I try to, my model is Dr. Cox from Scrubs. Uh, yes. I want to call. Amazing. Branding yeah. could be good. Yeah. So let's do another. I saw some other hands. Oh, Galloway. <laughs> no, go ahead. Go ahead. So you guys have talked about like frustrations or ways that you wish programming languages work differently. I'm wondering if there's some things about like the web platform, HTML, CSS, JavaScript that are getting in your way or you wish work differently. Oh, Specifically God. Stack Overflow? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No. Um, yeah, well, there's CSS, HTML. <laughs> what else did you say? JavaScript? Yeah, yeah I'll take that too. Friggin' semicolons, optional <laughs> programming language. That's true. I often forget that semicolons are optional. That kind of blows In my JavaScript. Mind. And that actually, makes, uh, that actually causes all kinds of real subtle bugs if you actually try to format your lines cleanly. Right. Uh, 
It, no. it, it, it means, you know what it means? Saying semicolons is optional means that sometimes you have to put everything on one line. Well, I think they a, don't have a continuation character in JavaScript. I think right? there's a fine tradition in computer science of having the worst possible language become the most popular language you can possibly imagine. Yep. Uh, and JavaScript is an excellent example of that. Yep. And, I mean, it has its strengths, you know, certainly. It's not crap, but it's just, if you could imagine a world where, like, imagine the best possible language that everybody was using in a utopia, it wouldn't be JavaScript, right? I mean, probably not. It's a pretty um, good language, and, except for that semicolons. Well, I think what happens with me is sometimes I, I look at JavaScript and, to a lesser extent, PHP. And I'm always saying negative things about PHP, but you realize that, okay, it's kind of crappy, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is, like, how much community is there how many people are enjoying writing with this stuff, how many people are you know, getting exposed to being programmers with this stuff. And this is all ultimately a net good. Even if JavaScript is way messier than you want it to be and the platform is very rickety and barely works, um, you know, there's something you know, sort of elegant about the fact that all these people are building cool things with it regardless of that it kind of sucks. You know, it's, it's, it's the classic example of just humans overcoming you know, adversity. adversity. It's also, the truth is, the programmers can write nice, clean code in any environment yeah. possible. and that's great. I mean, that's, that's inspiring. That I don't know. take this platform and build this awesome stuff with it. How many of you ever saw the old Excel macro language where you would put macro commands, like go-tos and stuff, inside spreadsheet cells, and then you, you told Excel, this is a macro sheet, not a worksheet, and instead of just evaluating all at the same time, it would evaluate it in order, and that's how you got code. So there were no local variables, there was no scope, there was no anything, there weren't even variables. The way you had a variable is you evaluated something in the cell, and then you referred to that cell by its name, and there's your variable, every cell is a variable. So it's basically like saying, you've got a programming language where every statement leaves behind a little value that you can refer to <laughs> later. And people would literally, people would literally, I saw code in the Excel macro language that wanted to do different things in different orders, and so it inserted different statements in cells, and then in the cells next to it, inserted the numbers one, two, three, in whatever order. It's so like three, one, oh, two, see. four, and yeah. then sorted, and then executed that code. <laughs> so it's like your code is That's on like the line fly, numbering. Line numbering. sorting its own line numbers, That's changing great. the line numbers and sorting them on the fly. This stuff was absolute garbage, and it was impossible to, it seemed like it was impossible to write clean code, but there were a couple of people who made a living writing Excel macros, and they had no choice, and they came up with these incredible coding conventions, like always use, always leave column seven blank, and always put this thing over here, and do this there, yeah. here's how you should do a dialog box and all that kind of stuff, naming conventions up the wazoo with all kinds of underscores to get you the effect of local variables. And uh, eventually, they got, they got it under control. So what I've always found is that developers that are good developers will find a way to write reasonable, reasonably clean code in whatever horrible, mangled environment you give them. On the other hand, there are environments that are more treacherous than others. Well, yeah, but they'll start very angry blogs about it, though. Oh, yeah. They'll have a very angry blog about the stuff that they have to write in. Uh, luckily, they didn't have blogs and, in the and days And for those of you keeping language. track, Joel did mention Excel, so we can drink now. Where's the beer? That's, that's the drinking game for the this podcast. Is, Certain things we always talk about. So there we go. Thank you. Um, so I believe you had a question, sir. I'm just looking from a different point of view. So um, I've got tons and tons of data, which I'm sitting on. And I'm trying to figure the best way to publish that data so um, programmers could use it. Now right now, uh, we're sticking it all in an XML database and just exposing the, the RESTful API that it actually has. But is there a better way of doing this? And um, you know, if you were in the same position, what would you do? What kind of data? Yeah, what kind of data? Oh, um, lots of kind of long form, um, it's kind of news data, weather data. It's all a mix of all types of stuff. So it's like snippets of text? Um, yeah, some of it. Some of it's more kind of um, numbers and 
kind of stuff that makes up graphs and stuff like that. We've got tons and tons of it. Basically, we're a publisher. Mm-hmm. Well, so there's actually a, a there's sort of uh, there's an article in a book I edited called The Best Software Writing, and uh, there's an article in there by Adam Bosworth, and he really talks about how like it's sort of the, like the less is more for data formats. Basically, um, the, the data formats that have been the most successful have been the ones that have really, really messy and sloppy definitions. Um, and so one of the things, I mean, Adam Bosworth worked on XML. And although the XML format itself is very, very strict, um, there's something about XML, which is that uh, you, you in, almost always, if you're a publisher of some data, um, you can publish a whole bunch of objects in XML or whatever, the trees, trees of data in XML that have... Uh, you know, some format, some consistency, but they don't have to have full consistency. In XML, nobody's going to yell at you if you leave off some attribute on something because you don't have that piece of data for that particular thing. And similarly, if you want to go back later and add another piece of data to every single, uh, every single uh, tag that you have in your entire uh, database, you can do that, and all the old code will continue to work. So like the old binary formats, if you changed one thing, every single consumer of that data would break. Um, but the new, uh, sort of the new, the web style is really, really loosely coupled. So you, you basically say, this is kind of what our data looks like. You can ki- go ahead and look at it. We're not really going to tell you much about the format. We're not going to guarantee that much. Um, but, you know, good luck. Pick out what you want to pick out and ignore everything else. And then you can sort of add things later. And that particular model, for whatever reason, with HTML especially, uh, turned out to be, uh, to, be, to be far more successful. So... Um, I think about, I can't think of how many, I mean, the semantic web is a great example of somebody trying to be not sufficiently loosely coupled. Uh, and the reason that semantic web, you've been hearing about this since, I don't know, when did you first hear about the semantic web? Does anybody, like, like literally the day after the World Wide Web was launched, T- Timothy Berners-Lee started saying, and now we're going to do the semantic web, and it's going to have all this encoding so you can actually find the author of a document in a standardized way, and a document, if a document asserts any facts, they're going to be encoded in a standardized way that we all agree upon, and you can search the entire internet for them, and it's going to just sort of work. And of course, it never really did. What did work is these gigantic search engines searching data that has no format whatsoever. And, 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 is, and it's that loose coupling between like, the data that's just a big, bloody mess. And you know, maybe you could try to scrape some reasonable stuff out of it. And you know, to the extent that there's any consistency in your data, you should reflect that consistently. But the loose coupling, uh, uh, you know, the lack of like, hard definitions, I think is one of the things that is, is why the web sort of took off uh, and became a huge success. So what I'm hearing is try full text indexing like Lucene. Like basically try, say, what if this wasn't a database? Like, is there a way to deal with this data in another form that might be more flexible? Because a lot of times with Lucene, uh, on the public web, you have a problem, which is that people are liars. (laughs) They'll tell you something is about, you know, Viagra, (laughs) and it's maybe not. Uh, But you don't uh, have that problem on your local data. You know that the data is honest. So if it has a meta tag, you can trust it, right? Uh, so the meta tags actually become useful to local data. And we actually see this. We did some research on this. Like Google has a local search indexed like, appliance. And you can actually configure it to look at the metadata locally and use that in a very big way in the searches, which you, you don't do at all on the public web because you'll just get lies. Um, so I think that would be the one thing to look at is like take away the database 
and think about it that way and see what happens. The other thing I think that Adam Bosworth likes to talk about a lot is that the reason that the, there were a lot of people trying to create the internet in various forms. There was the there was Xanadu. There was there were all kinds of hypertext projects. Uh, there were all the CD-ROMs. There were various public databases of various sorts, like CompuServe. For years and years, was full of like stock data and all kinds of historical weather data. I mean, that stuff existed beforehand. But there was an obsession. These people had this obsession with if you do a search, you need to find everything. And so if I want to search for people to live on my block, I need the complete list of everybody that lives on my block. And um, what the search engines eventually said is, you're going to get half of it and stuff is just going to be missing. But it doesn't matter because as long as you get enough useful information, nine out of ten times, you're better off. And uh, that, it took a lot of, uh, th that was almost like a scientific revolution when people started admitting we don't need to get 100% right answers. We don't have to have a right answer for everything. Um, a, a similar example, the Xanadu project basically got stuck for decades because they were worried about what happens when a document that you link to goes away. They wanted the link to be updated somehow. And they just kept obsessing over this particular problem. And then the World Wide Web came out and they just said, document goes away, you click on it, you get an error message. Duh. <laughs> And that's okay. And, and this, this has turned out to have been an engineering problem that lots of other people were just buried in bi-directional links before they could actually figure, figure that out. So it's like classic worse is better. I mean, you have a partial solution that is okay, but it's better than spending years trying to find the perfect solution. You know? So get something out there, try it out, see how far you go. Did that, um, did that answer your question? Or? It kind of did. I mean, the interesting part is that most of the programmers seem to like um, some kind of API, some kind of, or some kind of RESTful interface. So, XYRPC seems to have gone away for most things. But if I gave you an interface which had yeah. an XPath yeah. kind of front end, would you use that over, or would you just kind of go, uh, not really interested, just do a dump? And uh, it depends on how much you care about the data, how much you want it. I mean, it depends a lot on the data, how it's going to be used. Uh, you know. Uh, that, that's all I can really say there. The one thing I like about the RESTful APIs is if you can give programming examples where you basically tell people, just go try typing this URL into your browser <laughs> and look at that cool XML that you get, yeah. and now you get what's going on, and then you're just like, aha! I'm, no, you're, no. Already getting, you're already getting some, some value out of that thing even before you've learned anything, and so the first thing you're going to immediately do is start trying to figure out how you can tweak that URL to get the piece of data that you want. And then if it just gives you a big blob of XML, then you're like, okay, I'm a programmer. I can deal with this. I'll figure out how to pull out what I need from that XML or pull out the particular things I want. So that's what I love about the RESTful APIs versus the more complicated ones, SOAP, or anything that requires a post. Right. Go, for, go with Des and then okay. Scott. Uh, just revisiting the previous question in regards to uh, uh, what annoys you with the web, I find it funny. I think it's just my experience is I used to be a lecturer, so I used to teach things like CSS and JavaScript, and I used to deal with questions like, you know, I said float left, and now it's disappeared off the screen. What the fuck's going on? You know, all that sort of stuff. So I went out back out to my old college recently, and like I was, again, giving out about JavaScript because it really, really annoys me. And the students were like, oh, we love it. Like We just use jQuery, and there's no problems at all. Oh, and then, and yeah. then I was like, well, you know, PHP is a crop manager. No, we just use Zen. It's a great framework. <laughs> and I was like, well, who's teaching? And the lecturers are all teaching frameworks now. <laughs> now, what's happened yeah. is the, the students all think JavaScript's brilliant because it never goes wrong because jQuery takes away all the problems, in fact. And I was sort of saying, well, well you know, okay, maybe it doesn't. So well, maybe that's the answer. Well, maybe so. But like, I was sort of saying, well, what happens when you know when something doesn't work in jQuery? And they're like, well, uh, do you have a choke on your car? What? <laughs> no. Do you have a manual choke? I mean, they used no. to always yeah. have a manual choke. You would adjust the mixture of the oil and the gasoline manually. Yeah. And uh, you know that got automated away in 
You know, we don't think about that anymore. That's not the end of the world. If, like, the truth is most people here would not know what to do with a car that had a manual choke on it. Absolutely. But um, just on that, like, so I was arguing, like, you know, well, what when jQuery doesn't work? And basically, one, one guy went off and he learned the, the guts of JavaScript to work out exactly where the problem was and he fixed it. The other guy put his feet up and the next patch for, J, for like, jQuery fixed it. Yeah. And it was sort of like, you know, a bit of a, you know, a pissing contest between the two and going, who had the right solution? But I mean, they're both kind of happy. I, I suppose the question is, what is your opinion of lecturers teaching frameworks for languages as opposed to languages themselves? Well, I don't know. I mean, unless it's a, a, a technical vocational institute whose goal in life is to train programmers to go work in industry the day after they graduate. And if that's their goal, then that's, that's a fine way to do that. Um, although they're not training the greatest programmers in the world, they're training warm bodies that will be able to crank stuff out, you know, maybe those CRUD apps I was talking about before with some usefulness. Uh, on the other hand, if you really want to train a developer, um, there's so much else that they have to learn um, that, you know, I feel like almost a liberal arts curriculum is probably better. When I think about, uh, you know, if you're going to write code like Stack Overflow, you probably learn more from a course in cultural anthropology where you learn about human beings and how they interact and how they work together. Um, and I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff in Stack Overflow, there's a lot of stuff in Fogbugs um, that's all based on uh, Psychology 101, principles of, of human psychology, principles of anthropo cultural anthropology, principles of architecture, uh, and I mean architecture like building buildings. I don't mean architecture, uh, um, architecture, architecture. Well, whatever, you know. I mean, the principles of, there's all kinds of other, other stuff that you can learn from other fields. Um, being able to write clearly, write English clearly, is more important to developing useful software, I think, than, uh, than almost anything else. And that's something you're more likely to learn in the English department than in a computer science department. So for a real, as a, if you want to have a real career as a software developer, um, I try to use the word software developer to mean somebody who creates software, not just a programmer, but they do everything that it takes to make like a real software product. Um, then I think you know a computer science degree is fine, but the computer science degree should focus on algorithms. It should focus on some math. It should focus on some sort of core, you know, some of the core history, learning how to learn, um, learning how to figure out the pointers and the recursion and those really hard things um, that you may not have to do in the real world just to train that part of your brain. And then there's other more useful stuff you can do in, in university at the university level rather than the actual practicalness. So um, you know, personally, I'm not offended if there's a university somewhere that is in the computer science department never actually teaches people to write a simple program. Well, okay, so you could invert that. You could say, okay, it's better to learn the thing under, so let's use JavaScript as an example. It's better to learn JavaScript really well and then say, oh, but you don't need to mess with that because there's this jQuery thing which abstracts away most of it and deals with the browser across compatibility. But these are big, big deals, big wins, to the point that once you learn jQuery, you kind of stop caring about the JavaScript yeah. so much. So then you sort of wonder, well, why not just skip that step learn the higher level, and yeah. then if, if you come to an impasse where like you can't do something in jQuery, you could do a just-in-time page fault and say, I'm going to learn the enough one thing JavaScript to fix or get around this one issue I'm having with but, jQuery. But that's so what I think that takes six weeks. That's really hard. If you haven't learned the basics, that page fault into I don't, the, uh, I don't the abstraction stopped working, I've got to figure it out. I don't know. I, if you've never learned... I, I don't entirely agree with that, but particularly in this case because the, the layers are pretty similar. They, now, yeah. if you're talking like, okay, now I need to go to assembly language to fix this, or <laughs> I need to go to the hardware level. Okay, yes, that's dramatic. But I think in this case, it's just not that dramatic. And I think a good programmer is driven by curiosity. And they'll say, okay, I know jQuery really well, but wow, this is really cool. What happens if I do this outside of jQuery? And they're going to learn it anyway. You know, like I, Hopefully. Some, I, I kind of have the opposite opinion. I think there's, you know, you could do it either way, both work, but... I just, I like to err on the side of the practical stuff more than the theoretical, so. What, um, 
but then there's no limit. I mean, how high can you go in abstraction? At some point, sure. you don't have to learn Java jQuery. You can just like type a question into Stack Overflow and get some people to answer it's, your... It's totally a judgment or call. Or you can go to one of those code guru sites and these Romanian kids will, for $5, actually do your job for you. <laughs> More power to them. Yeah, no, th it's judgment. Um, so that's just the higher, that's the stupider higher level of abstraction. When that starts to fail, you kind so of So there's another guy named Scott. Hi. Scott. Um, hi, how are you? Hey. Um, I have a question. I was going to ask one question, but now I'm so entranced by your last answer that I, <laughs> I got to dig into that. It's mesmerizing. So, so I was sitting at a, I was sitting at a, at Chipotle today. Yeah, how was that? Uh, it was by the fantastic. Way. How many people? How many people? <laughs> About forty. Scott took uh, 40, 40 geeks over to the yeah. Chipotle. Is there one like right awesome. here in the casino or? It, well, yeah. Go to nerddinner.com and it'll tell you Sweet. all about it. Not quite a sophisticated Stack Overflow. So my, I was sitting there with a couple of guys that worked on our team at Microsoft, and they were like 22, 23. And we got into this whole old dudes, young dudes <laughs> conversation. So talking about education. Which, which one are you? <laughs> I, I would be with the old dude. Yeah, he's, I'm the he's one who can like see now. 40. Uh, so the question was that I was trying to understand from these guys is that how, how different is the worldview of a programmer who's 20-something who was born while the web was happening versus the guy that was born before the web? And how important is historical context? And I'm guessing that you would think that historical context is, is important, and you would probably say it's not important at all, Jeff, as I gesture to Joel and Jeff. Well, you know. In general, I think you have to look at the specifics uh, of the case. That's, and the that, older, those are characters my, we my play point on TV. was, as, a, as, you know, as kind of a, get off my lawn yeah. kind of right. old dude, uh, I'm thinking the older I get, the less patience I have for people who don't remember the historical context. It's, it's very interesting because I... But I, it's I, those people that keep coming up with fresh ideas like I, Twitter. I'm totally biased in hiring because like we still at Fog Creek, we still insist that you know C. Uh, you're not going to get past our, our interview so you wouldn't hire you see recursion and Yeah, well, we would have told him if he had applied, we would have told him uh, just study Kernahan and Ritchie at least. Right. before you show up to the interview. Right, so I mean, there are developers that learned you... that their first language was JavaScript, and they don't know a, a register from... Yeah. from and I, I never hire them, so I don't know whether they're good or not. So that's my personal bias. Uh -huh. uh, and and, what's, what, and it, what strikes me as weird is that I'm hiring these 22-year-olds out of school, and they know just as much about these ancient technologies How as I do. How can they? I... I don't know. I've never seen a cassette player and, like, plug it into, <laughs> like, a VIC-20 and... I, you know, I asked a question at, 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 uh, at Fog Creek once at lunch. I said, how many of you's first programming language was basic? And it was like everybody. And I, I thought that was going away, right? Because that was like, that's our generation, isn't it, Scott? Pretty much. I mean, that's like... Basic. You know, times. No, I mean, like we had TRS-80s and, and Apple IIs. And you typed some, some code from the David All book, Creative Computing. You typed some of those little programs in and you learned basic. Yeah, uh, that wasn't in basic, was it? Program no, there was, there, were, there was some like little games that you would type in. So, uh, uh, yeah, so I don't really know what, um, uh, but, but, like, I'm still finding enough people that I can hire that know enough, but they don't really know the history. Like, I, I constantly have to regale them with the, 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 the I guess the that's my question, are. is that how important is historical context in this young, relatively young field? I mean, you're talking about, like, things like, you, when you bust out social anthropology, yeah. which is, you know, an ancient art, you know, how humans think and move and are, you know, crowd theory, mm -hmm. but you might hire someone that doesn't know that there are such things as languages without garbage collectors. Right, right. Is that an okay paradox, or is that not, is that not a paradox at all? Well, I kind of have to go back to my previous answer, which is I think that good programmers have an intellectual curiosity. They're going to take something and just say, what happens if I rip this apart? How far down can I go? And they're going to learn what they need to learn to solve the problem at hand. Um, 
And I, I think that's a very common theme. Even for developers that like never, you know, JavaScript is their first language, they can be brilliant. I mean, I just that's I see it all the time. I'm gonna, there's a lot of historical context that I think may be wrong. I think, I, like for example, uh, you know, if I had, if I had been more involved in the coding of Stack Overflow, I would have said, don't use ASP.NET MVC. It's it's not shipping. I because I, I would have been like, you know, I have learned not to use code that's not 1.0 at least, and 1.0 is probably a little bit dangerous because you're just going to have to rewrite your code. And that's just like a, I got burnt by that 67 years ago, and that would have been a, that would have been a wrong call. And I'm constantly, constantly telling telling the youngins at Fog Creek these stories of something we did in the Excel days, and like, and that's how I learned never, ever, ever dereference yeah, a pointer. That's right. You know, <laughs> this is, but this is my previous point of like you've got to continue to reevaluate these arguments yeah, because yeah, things change so rapidly. Right. So if you come in with this old guy, wow, I tried that five times and it sucked. I'm never going to try that again. Yeah. But these developers, they don't know what's possible and what's impossible, and that's, yep. there's really sort of a beauty to that of like they'll try anything and like some of it will work, right? And they're going to build these things that are really cool. Some of them. And like, I hate to be the guy going, well, you know, you're not like us old guys. But I think there's a lot of mentoring there of like, okay, there are some classic, it really pains me when I see developers come on Stack Overflow making the same stupid mistakes that I made. Yeah. It really bothers me. And I feel like <laughs> that is our responsibility to, to newer programmers say, look, you know, uh, try whatever you want, but realize that lots of people have made this mistake. <laughs> date diff and it's does painful. not do what you think date diff does. Yeah, or like <laughs> that, the idea favorite. that you don't have to declare variables <laughs> sounds really awesome yeah. until it breaks your face, right? Right, so, right. Um, there are some, some nuggets of wisdom that you can give to people that are coming up. But on the other hand, I don't think you want to crush them and say, no. you know, you must learn Latin and then you learn assembly and then you, <laughs> then and only then are you allowed to be a programmer. I try, I know, try very hard. This is not the right way to do it. I try, I try very hard to control myself because I, my mom, I, as somebody who's uh, here in the audience will certainly know that at the University of New Mexico in the English department in 1973, there was somebody, I don't know who, who would kibosh every single new idea by saying, oh, when I was at Berkeley, we tried that and it sucked. And yeah. my mom used to rant and rave about him at dinner every single night. And so I learned that whenever a sentence starts with when I was at dot, 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 <laughs> when I usually say it, it's Which when I was like at Microsoft. Every sentence When I was says. on the Excel team and whatever, that you immediately have to like discount <laughs> that, shut that whole thing down, stop that whole train of conversation, especially in software, because right. software is changing so much uh, and so frequently. Well, Joel, I know you mentioned that like one issue that you have sometimes with people at Fog Creek is they won't question you because you're the boss. Yeah, that's, I and especially like, have to fight that one. Yeah, and, and yeah. you end up ironically fighting the people that aren't questioning your judgment when the, the very reason you hire them is you yep. want the type of people who are going to say, well, maybe that isn't a good idea. Like, right. what if that isn't a good idea? And are willing to look at it rationally. So on some level, you want that. Or, so. or make their own mistakes and basically do it from a set of fre fresh eyes. There's something, you know what, if I had to identify something that, um, that Microsoft has trouble with, uh, there's a lot of technologies become very, very popular in college. Uh, everybody's doing them in college. Those kids graduate. They become the, a generation of youngins at Microsoft. But they're so young, I mean, they're so low in the totem pole at Microsoft that they have almost no clout. Nobody listens to them. And um, for years and years, I mean, think about how long it took Microsoft to get the internet. I mean, like literally, uh, Steve Sinoski had to go back to Cornell, discover what all the youngins would do, write this email, send it to Bill Gates, the email uh, Cornell is wired, a uh, very famous case, and all of a sudden everybody started lighting up, even though Jay Allard was screaming those things at Microsoft for five years beforehand. And, and not just him, and there were just, just there, there was just sort of a large class of people. You know, even me. You know, there were there were people right. at at, uh, uh, at Microsoft in, in uh, you know when I, when I started at Microsoft, nobody in PSS knew what Usenet was, and I was trying to tell them, dudes, look on Usenet. There's a whole Excel group here, and there are people asking questions. Answer them there, and you won't have to answer them a hundred times when those people call up. And uh, there, there was no no way anybody. I had no clout, and there was no way anybody would listen to me. 
So uh, it really took like another five years before somebody, finally somebody from the inside click figured it out. And look where Steven Snofsky is now. He's, That's right. He's in charge of Windows 7. Everything, yeah. Pretty much everything. So. Yeah. So, uh, it pays to question authority. <laughs> it pays to listen to the young'uns. And, and, uh, and I think, I, to, to be fair, I don't think that happens as nearly as much um, at Microsoft. I mean, look at all the Twitter signs that you see around this conference. Uh, it's pretty obvious that there's not nearly as much uh, deafness to the outside world as there used to be. So do you want to do, we're at one hour, so you want to do maybe one more? Or? Uh, yeah, let's do, one, let's do one more question, actually, if anybody wants to bring up a Somebody new... Uh, Somebody in the back row, maybe? Nobody? Somebody, 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 somebody. Somebody? Nobody? Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, oh, there oh, we got somebody. Oh, somebody new. Finally. We nominate you. Wait, wait, wait. Microphone. Yeah, my name's Jason. Uh, this is a Stack Overflow thing. Uh, at what point in Stack Overflow do you see yourselves hiring specialists? Like a UX person or? Uh, well, we have to some degree. I mean, we have Jeremy, Jeremy Kratz, who was our designer. Um, and that's his specialty. I mean, he's not so much a developer. So we have brought them in. And we have Brent Ozar, who's a database guy. He doesn't really code. Um, so we have. I think we bring them on sort of a more on an as-needed basis. Because they're going to sit around twiddling their thumbs most of the time. They get bored, right? But certainly, no, experts are awesome. I mean, I totally respect. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, Brent Ozar, are you kidding? Yeah, oh, he's genius. He's yeah. great. And, and Jeremy did a great job with the design. So I, I believe in deferring work that you're not good at, like saying, OK, I know I'm not good at this. And I know there are people who are much better at it than me. And, and knowing, hey, I don't try to do everything yourself. I mean, I, I do that sometimes where I just, I'll just do it all myself. Screw it. I don't need anybody. Uh, but you've got to know when to say when and say, okay, bring in the experts. Well, actually, uh, the way, I mean, the way a bootstrap software company is always going to work is there's a founder or two, and they wind up just doing everything by default, Emp from emptying the trash, building the website, running the servers, just like literally everything. Because the truth is you have the need for about one-eighth of a system administrator, one-sixteenth of a database administrator. Right. You need about three days of graphic design a year. Uh, and you just do it yourself because it's hard to find those people. Sometimes you do. If you're lucky, you can find uh, consultants to come in and do that stuff at a reasonable uh, price in the early days. Can I rephrase? Because sure. it's something I can't do when I'm sure, listening sure. to the podcast. Um, rephrasing that question, I'm trying to get a specialist designer into my team. I'm trying to sell it to my boss. Yeah. I'm not sure how to do it. I get a lot of resistance. I get a lot of developers who believe that they, they can do the design. It's good enough. Any thoughts on that? How, many, uh, how big is the team? Uh, three and a half. So that's where you need about half a designer? To a full-time? Because like, the truth well, is, a full if you actually hired a full-time designer right now, that person would get very bored in a month and a half. They would do a great job. Then your app would be so much better. But it's, it's very hard. I mean, so you, you, you need to f either find a situation where you're uh, either hiring somebody uh, temporarily or you have somebody that's kind of good at it and could do something else uh, at the same time or maybe they can work on some other team if there is such a thing. Uh, but you are, it, it, you know, from my experience at Fog Creek, uh, a, a UI designer or a user interaction designer um, can keep 10 programmers busy. Uh, with, with their designs. And so you sort of need a 10 to 1 ratio of user, if it's, if it's just pure uh, user interface slash design. Um, well, well, let's go to specifics. So I, yeah. I think in the case of database stuff, like Brent could come in, look at it, and say, you guys could double your speed on like, some of these queries. Yeah, but he does queries. that in a day. Well, sure, he right. does it in a day, but that's the value proposition. I mean, at it's least cute. you get the person in there and say, hey, let's at least pay this guy to do some work for us. And maybe that's part of the sales pitch is like, he doesn't need to be full time. Right? He just needs to come in, do his specialist commando thing that he's awesome at, or she, yeah. uh, and then take off, and maybe on an ongoing basis. But I think you've got to point to specific things, like we could double our query speed. Like, and usually with designers, the great thing is they'll come up with designs that look so good. You know, like, wow, why haven't we been doing it this way all along? So if you could just say, hey, look, it could look like this, they'll be like, wow, that's much better. Right? It's just obvious that 
it's just cleaner, simpler, better. Are you, you know? looking at the uh, the actual uh, user interface design, user interaction, or the actual visual, the actual visuals and the art? Well, I'd, I'd kind of like to roll both. I mean, the problem we have is we have a, a lot of content and a, a pretty big site. It's, it's kind of more of a brownfield thing than a greenfield thing. So, so it would be expensive. Yeah, so what we have is a lot of developers who come up with a really shiny new thing, but the problem is that area they're working on looks great, but the rest of the site still looks less great. So it's just a value, business value proposition, right? Like, are they going to increase the usage or basically please the customers enough to justify the investment? And plus, just on a professional you know, standpoint, I mean, it's more enjoyable to work on things that look good, right? I mean, you would think. And sometimes developers have a blind spot around this, so you have to be careful. It's like, oh, no, I designed this. It looks really, really good. Dalgas is laughing because he's seen me do this. <laughs> he's like, oh, yeah, Jeff does that all the time. This looks really good. It's like, it looks crap. So, yeah. So and maybe, you know, bring in some other people. But I, I think you have to pitch it. And I think you have to have some stuff on the table, like examples of, like, this is what it could look like. And that's how I'd try to sell it. What's that? Oh, so I was going to say you could like one. I mean, I used to work in a consultancy where we used to have to sell the benefits of UX all the time. But like analytics is the one thing that really hits home with any sort of senior figures. Is the answer right? Say. The classic A/B test was like, okay, we'll have the old crappy design. Yeah. We'll see how much traffic we get, and then we'll have these pages. Yeah. Just do a small rollout. Say these pages have become awesome, and then just compare statistically. You know, as long as they're roughly the same traffic level. These things have a, a huge amount of return on investment for early, early stage stuff done, uh, whether it's a simple A-B testing, uh, analytics, trying different ways, um, to usability testing where you basically show your design to the first three people, you're going to find four or five huge problems. Uh, it, just doing three or four usability tests, uh, you can do one morning a week with amateurs and you'll find lots of, lots of very, very important usability problems. To graphic design, like just hiring a temporary designer to come in and redo your, the main look and choose some fonts um, can make something look dramatically more professional. And you get a lot of bang for the buck. And those kind of things may start to train management uh, that there's a lot of value uh, in this stuff. All right, so we're pretty much out of time. Guess what I have to do? I have to remember the Stack Overflow podcast phone number. Uh, for our listeners at home, if you have right. any questions, I got it up right here. You can email us at mp3 or ogvorbis file to podcast at stackoverflow.com or call the Stack Overflow hotline at 646-826-3879. Um, we'll also have the wiki. Tell them about the wiki. So we also have a wiki for people who aren't able to listen to the audio. It's a collaborative transcript that everybody pitches in to create. I will have that linked in the show notes. And this cool live podcast. We'll go up on the blog as usual. So, Blog.stackoverflow.com. Yep. We'll have all kinds of uh, links to all the stuff that we mentioned in the show. Thank you very much for coming out. Yep. Thanks, and, guys. Uh, enjoy the conference. Yeah. Enjoy Mix. See you next week. We always say see you next week. Oh, again. yeah. See you next week. See you next week. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.